0: Here we go. How's that? All right. We're good to go. All right. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Good. I'm really excited to be here uh, in Manhattan with you guys. Uh, Brogan and I, we're, we're here for a while and uh, we're really blessed to be a part of Blue Mount while we're in Manhattan. And, uh, excuse me, we're really excited what God's doing here in Manhattan and honored to be here this morning. So, Um, If you haven't met our baby, you know, you should go do that. (laughs) It's the only reason people wanted us to come here. (laughs) Um, Well, yeah, let's dive in. Do we have any uh, Aldi shoppers in the room? Any, like, die hard like I only go to Aldi? Yeah, okay. Man, so the new Aldi here is pretty sweet, right? So some of you guys may have heard the story of how Aldi started. Uh, It's these two German brothers, Carl and Theo Albrecht. They took over their family grocery store in Germany after World War II, and, uh, excuse me, it was in this little mining town, and they only offered, like, the bare essentials, so like, you know, flour, bacon, condensed milk, you know, all that stuff, and bacon is obviously an essential, you know, you can't, you can't call yourself a grocery store and not offer bacon, Um, and so, but they, they only offered, like, 250 items, they didn't offer very many items, so, Uh, they started to kind of catch up, you know, some ground. So like, man, let's take this other places. So um, if you've ever been to an Aldi now, uh, they're very popular. And this newspaper wrote about Aldi that uh, they have dim lighting. It bounces off uh, brown tiled floors. The shelves are sparsely filled with cardboard boxes. Uh, The checkout lines stretch into infinity, right? And there's nothing really super about these stores, yet Aldi who's betting billions of dollars that it can win over spoiled American shoppers, not my words, by offering them fewer choices than the competitors. Isn't that interesting? They'd offer less choices, and they're finding all this success. And so it's actually, it's working out, uh, because everywhere that Aldi has started a store, it's blown up. I mean, the company started at a single little grocery store in Germany after World War II, and now has 10,000 locations in 18 countries, uh, and they bring in $83 billion a year. All because their business model is to limit the options. So it's very different than, you know, Walmart or whatever. You can get a million of different kinds of toothpaste if you want. And so we're going to talk about how in the same way, God, who is infinitely powerful, who's everywhere at once, he's outside of time and space, he's mind-blowingly huge, he can do whatever he wants, he chooses to limit himself in the method that he uses to accomplish his purposes on the earth. And, uh, and so we're going to look at a story about how he does that and why he does that, uh, which I think will really blow our minds. So if you guys have your Bibles, open them up to Genesis 12. <coughs> Excuse me. So this is uh, this is really cool, and I, I hope that this kind of like calls something out of us this morning. That Genesis twelve, God reaches out to this guy named Abraham, and uh, he he says, "Man, I want to I want to make a, a covenant with you. I want to make a promise with you uh, about how I want to accomplish my purposes on the earth." And he tells this to Abraham. He makes this promise to him. He says, "I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous." And all the families on the earth will be blessed through you. Isn't that interesting? All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, this is an important principle of the Bible that 99.9% of the time, God limits Himself and chooses to work through people. Okay, so He could show and he's done this a few times in the Bible, but it's like the 0.01%. He could show up everywhere he wants to do something with a pillar of fire and just drop it in the middle and shout out of a bullhorn, you know, hey people do this, this is what's going to happen, and I'm sure that would be quite effective, you know, if we were sitting here and just, you know, and this voice out of the sky started shouting at us, like, uh, this seems legit, like, let's, what are we gonna do about this, right? But he doesn't do that. Most of the time, he chooses to work through people, He calls out an individual and says, Hey, I'm going to send you to go accomplish my work in this place. Let's work together. So, all throughout the Bible, he describes what his people should be and do to accomplish these things that he wants to do through people. And this is really interesting. So at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1, he tells human beings to be fruitful, to multiply, uh, to cultivate the earth, to take the raw materials of the earth and to make something amazing out of it. And then in Genesis 12, what we just read, he says, hey, you're to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That's the kind of people you're supposed to be. And then what's interesting is in the Old Testament, there is this system where in, there was a temple where God's presence would rest only in the temple. And the only people allowed in the temple were the priests of God, this very select class of people that could go in at certain times and encounter the presence of God representing the people of God, the rest of them that weren't allowed in the temple. But then, when Jesus comes on the scene, He says, hey, we're changing things up. All of you that are my followers, all of you are the temple. All of you have the presence of God in you. All of you are priests now to spread the presence of God everywhere that you go. Like taking what we just said to be a blessing to all the nations, taking that even further. This is the way that you're going to be a blessing to all the nations. You're going to take the presence of God that's in you and take it everywhere that you go and spread it. And so then he talked about all these upside-down, crazy ways of living that would be characteristics of his people. Like he said, hey, when people hate you, pray for those people. When you have enemies, love them. you're like, what the heck? Like, who does this? Like, no one does this, you know? And he he kept going. He said, hey, you're going to do miracles. You're going to heal the sick. You're going to cast out demons and do all kinds of crazy stuff. And he said that the greatest among you shouldn't seek power and approval like most great people around you, but they're actually to lay their life down and serve the people around them. And not even just the people that can give you something in return, but those that can't give anything like widows and orphans, like people, they can't give anything back to you. You know, you get nothing in return. He crossed gender and racial divides and ethnic divides in shocking ways uh, to show that God is for all people and desires that all people would be brought into this new people group that would be His covenant people that are to go out and bless the nations. And so this is pretty amazing, uh, this way of living that God calls His people to live and what He calls His people to be. It's kind of like He says, hey, go therefore and bless everyone that you ever come in contact with always. Right? And it's not—it's so much bigger than just go to church on Sundays and get involved in your church and you know do things. It's like, Every moment of your life, with every person that you ever come in contact with, this is supposed to affect all of those things. Isn't that interesting? I uh, Actually, the, we're talking about Empower. The guy that's coming to Empower named Jamie Winship, I heard him give this illustration about what life in the kingdom should look like. And uh, you know, the President of the United States, when he goes to another country, um, the Secret Service or the Navy or whoever, they show up ahead of him and they say, The United States of America has arrived in Brazil. You know, or the United States of America has arrived in whatever place, right? And uh, if the president gets on a little tiny airplane, like a crop duster, you know, just like a two-seater little airplane, all of a sudden that airplane becomes Air Force One, right? And all of the forces of the, of the United States military go to protect and usher in that little tiny crop duster into whatever it's supposed to do, Right? So in the same way, because it's not about the vehicle, it's about who's on the vehicle, yeah, right? So in the same way, you and I, when we walk into somewhere, if you're a follower of Jesus, man, you're this temple of God, you're a priest of God, right? You have the, the Holy Spirit living in you. When you walk into to Dylan's, it's like all the armies of heaven are like, the kingdom of God has arrived in Dylan's. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you have, you know, the, like, the angels and the demons are like biting their teeth, like, what's going to happen? You know, like the kingdom just walked into Dylan's. like what's going to happen? You know, but we don't, we're not aware of that, so nothing happens. You know, we're like, just getting my groceries and we leave and they're like, the kingdom of God has left Dylan's. You know, like nothing happened, you know, and man, what would it look like for us to live like that all the time? You know, that'd be amazing. So God wants to partner with us. And we're going to look at this uh, story in the Bible of God partnering with a specific person uh, and actually, we're going to look at uh, a story of God partnering, attempting to partner with a very deeply flawed individual um, in this effort to bless the nations of the earth. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, open up to Jonah. We're going we're to camp out in this story of Jonah. Um, but how many of you guys are familiar with the story of Jonah? How many of you guys know kind of what happens? Okay, great. How many of you guys heard the story of Jonah growing up as a kid? Okay, this is awesome. It's also kind of a problem, okay? So uh, just kind of tell me, you know, you can kind of shout out. If you heard this story as a kid, how did you hear about this story as a kid? Veggie, tale. veggie Tales. Oh my gosh, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. Okay, so I heard someone call this the Veggie Tales Factor. We did not collude before this. They just, you know, I just knew it. Uh, it's prophetic. Uh, I heard someone call this the Veggie Tales Factor. Okay, Veggie Tales is amazing. I grew up watching Veggie Tales as a kid. Uh, you know, like, man, the cheeseburger song, so good, right? It's just great music. And, uh, but uh, Veggie Tales tends to water down an intense, complicated adult narrative into a simple children's story that simply boils down to a moral lesson, like be a nice person, right? You're like, the whole point of Jonah is be a nice person. Right? You're like, ah, I don't think that's the whole point. And there's one factor specifically about the story that all children's stories zero in on, which is whale. the whale, Jonah and the whale, which is also interesting because the Bible never actually uses the word whale. It uses the words big fish, and we're like, oh, big fish, like a whale, and just becomes <laughs> Jonah and the whale for all times, right? Uh, so uh, the, the whale is not the main point of the story. It's actually only in two sentences of this entire book. Okay, so... If we make the whale the main thing, we're totally going to miss out on what the main thing really is uh, because you kind of have to be an adult to pick up on the real depth and richness of the story because there's, there's anger, there's intrigue, there's deceit. I mean, there's all kinds of adult things that you, may, you might say aren't appropriate, you know, for, uh, for children. And actually, most children's Bibles leave out a whole chapter of Jonah because he's angry at God. And it's not appropriate for kids to see that people can be angry at God, right? And so we're going to look at, um, hopefully we can clear the weeds and kind of see, man, what does God really want to say to us in this story? Okay, so Jonah 1-1. And I I do have to say, um, man, there's this podcast that is really, really good that can give you tons and tons of more information. I listened to it, I was like, man, I want to say all this stuff, but we don't have time. But I think you'll be fascinated. It's called uh, My Strange Bible. And this guy just really digs in uh, this five-part thing about the whole book of Jonah. It's fascinating. He gives, like, historical things, and it's really, really interesting. Um, so check that out. But Jonah 1-1, one of the, the things that I think will help is there are a few styles uh, that this book uses to communicate. And one uh, is it's funny. It's supposed to be kind of a satire a little bit, like, which is, like, Satires like SNL, you know, it like makes fun of you while making you laugh at yourself. You know, it makes fun of like American culture, which is us, and, uh, and it makes you laugh at the same time, like, oh yeah, that's so funny, I do that all the time, you know, and so this is, it's kind of like that, okay? So we're going to see that, you know, it might get a little painful. Um, so Jonah 1.1, here we go. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai, and right there, uh, if you were an ancient Hebrew person, this would make you laugh. Uh, because Jonah translates to dove, which in the Bible is like purity and innocence, right? And Amittai means faithfulness. So dove, son of faithfulness. And we're about to see that Jonah is actually, ironically, the least innocent and, per- and faithful person in this <laughs> entire story. Okay, so this already should start to be like, whoa, 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 okay, I see where you're going with this, you know, okay? So the Lord gave this message to dove, son of faithfulness. Laugh track, <laughs> right? Ha, 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 here we go. Uh, God says this. He says, Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up, and he went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. Now, did I give you a map? Yes, I did. Okay, here we go. Where, so you got Israel right here, point A. You, where, you got Nineveh, which is what direction? It's northeast. And it's actually, it's kind of in, like, modern-day Iraq. It's only, like, 600 miles away. It's not that far, right? So this also is kind of funny in Hebrew culture because um, where's Tarshish? It's, it's, like, over there in Spain, which at that point, like, nothing existed past Spain. You know, it's like the Atlantic Ocean. That was, like, undiscovered waters. As far as they knew, it just dropped off into oblivion after that, right? So this is funny because not only does he just start going the opposite direction, He's literally going to the last place in existence in the opposite direction. <laughs> it's, like, it's like now boarding a ship to Timbuktu, or the edge of the world, right? It'd be like, what? like that is so bizarre that he would do that. Okay, so why, is he, why does he not want to go to Nineveh? Well, Assyria, which is the, the empire that Nineveh was in, was like the biggest, most baddest uh, empire the world had ever known up to that point in history. So... Uh, They were brilliant military strategists. They took over this whole region of the world. But they were also some of the most brutal, amoral, sadistic people on the planet. When they would take over a city, they would take their leaders out and skin them alive while the city watched. They would impale people and just post them around the city. They would put severed heads on the wall. I mean, these were like sick, twisted people, right? So... This is kind of like God telling you, this mission of like, hey, go give my message to Nineveh, would be like God telling you, I want you to move to uh, Nazi Germany and preach the gospel to Nazis, like in 1942. You'd be like, this is a bad idea, you know? Or like nowadays, like I want you to move to the Middle East and infiltrate ISIS and preach the gospel to ISIS. You'd be like, I don't, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure about that, you know? Like, <laughs> I don't feel comfortable doing this, you know? Um, so, but it wasn't just that he felt unsafe, it was that he hated the Assyrians. Because actually in the Bible, there were 12 tribes of Israel, and Assyria had annihilated 10 of the 12 tribes. Like, they don't exist anymore. The 10 of the 12 tribes don't exist anymore because of the Ninevites. And God is like, go give my message to the Ninevites. He's like, God, heck no. Like, I want them to burn, you know? I do not want them to say, be saved, The world would be better off if they were just obliterated off the face of the planet. So Jonah gets on a ship going the opposite direction. And not only the opposite direction, literally as far as he can possibly go in the opposite direction. Okay, so uh, we know the story. We're not going to read this part, but he gets on the ship. He goes, you know, in the opposite direction. I think somewhere around that little rain cloud on the map, you know, this is real historically accurate right here. The rain clouds, it's very precisely accurate. Um, the, the storm comes, and Jonah kind of knows, like, man, this storm is here because I'm disobeying God. So he gets the sailors, they throw him off the boat, and immediately the storm calms. And so he's like, well, I'm doomed. They just threw me out in the middle of the ocean and sailed away, you know. And so God arranges for the whale, the, the big fish, to come and swallow him. And in a three-day journey, it takes him back pretty much to where he started, and it spits him out on land, Right. And there we have the significance of the fish. Okay, so we're moving on. We're past the fish. It's not the main point of the story. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 3. Okay, so chapter 3 of Jonah. We have, Then the Lord spoke to Jonah again. Like, hey, let's try this one more time. You know, and he says, Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message that I already gave you. This time, Jonah was a little more complacent. He says, okay, He obeys the Lord's command, and he went to Nineveh, which was a city so large that it took three days to see it all. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. And the people of Nineveh believed God's message. And from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. Now there's so much that's interesting about this. First, I think, is... I don't think Jonah really got over the fact that he hated the Assyrians. Um, you, know, just, he like got, you know, he survived the whale, and he's like, okay, God, thanks for letting me survive that. You know, I should have died, and, you know, I survived. Thank you for your, God, your mercy in my life. But I still hate the Assyrians. Like, I'm not really on board with this plan. Why do we know that? We know that because look at his sermon. I don't know if it's still up there. His sermon in Hebrew is only five words long. In English, it's eight words long. I've already spoken way more than eight words to you, right? He doesn't say anything about why they're going to be destroyed. He doesn't say who they're going to be destroyed by. He doesn't say God at all. And he doesn't say if there's any hope. Like, can they do something about it? I don't know. He doesn't say anything. He literally just says, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. See ya. (laughs) You know? And it's like, I heard someone call this intentional prophetic sabotage. (laughs) It's like, Jonah's doing literally the least amount possible to still say, well, I obeyed and gave him your message. You know, like, you're all going to be destroyed in 40 days. See you later. And actually, later in the story, it says that after he goes and gives them your message, he goes outside the town and sits on a hill waiting to see what will happen. <laughs> like, Like, he's not really like, he doesn't want them to be saved. Like, he's not wanting them to repent and find forgiveness, right? He's like, yes, this is going to be great. Like, he's got popcorn, you know, he's, he's ready to go. And so, uh, th- I thought this was interesting because I felt like I could relate to this on a personal level. I mean, how many of you guys can relate to this? Like, God tells you to do something, you're not really excited about it, but you kind of feel like, well, if I don't do this, I'm going to regret it. So, you do the minimum required to still feel like, well, I obeyed God. You know, I did what I was supposed to do right? So uh, maybe, you know, if you're a Christian, maybe you feel like God is like, hey, I want you to bring up your faith to your coworker." And she's like, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a coffee mug that has a, a fish on it. And I'm going to carry this coffee mug around work and hope that they ask me about it. And then when they don't ask me about it, it's like, man, those heathens, they don't want anything to do with God. Like, did my duty. Like, I brought up my faith, and they didn't want anything to do with it. Like, they must hate God, you know. Or, or you feel like God is like, man, I want you to share the gospel with your friend. And I really want you to invest in this relationship. So you invite them to the Knowing God class, which is awesome. Knowing God, you should do that. But then they, they're not able to come. They're on vacation or whatever. You're like, man, they must hate God. They didn't make time for this. Like, I'm never asking them again to anything. Like, they really, like, I did my duty and they didn't respond you know, or whatever it is for you, you know, whatever it is, you feel like, I'm just gonna do the minimum required, and be like, did what I was supposed to do, you know what I'm saying? So this is kind, this is where it starts to get a little painful, right? It's like, whoa, whoa, hey, I thought this was a funny story about Jonah, like, why are you turning it on me here? So uh, let's, let's move on, because uh, we're gonna really dig into this. So Jonah 3, verse 10, the, 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 the people repent, right, which is interesting in and of itself, because he doesn't say anything about God, what they can do about it. Uh, he just says, hey, you're all going to die in 40 days. Like, he literally, all, all, that's all he says. But somehow, the Holy Spirit must have been, like, doing something to stir up the soil of their hearts. They were just ready. Like, they were so ready. It, it doesn't even say, like, he says, hey, turn back to God. He, they don't even necessarily know what God this is from, but it says that they believed God's message. And they repented. They turned from their sin. Which is amazing. I mean, God is just so good to use such a flawed method you know, of presenting the gospel to people. And so then in verse 10, it says, When God saw that they had what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, He changed His mind. He did not carry out the destruction that He had threatened. And this change of plans greatly upset Jonah. And actually, in the, in the original Hebrew, this actually means this was evil in the eyes of jonah so jonah saw the mercy of god as evil like he's like it's evil that you are showing them mercy isn't that that's an interesting place to be right thinking that god is evil so he gets very angry so he complains to the lord about it he's didn't i say before i left home that you would do this lord that's why i ran away to timbuktu I knew that you're a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. Which those are like great things, right? We're like, yeah, that's awesome. Like, what's wrong with that? You are eager to turn back from destroying people. You jerk. You know, like, <laughs> just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. This guy really wanted the Ninevites to repent and find forgiveness, didn't he? I mean, he did not like them. So Jonah is so angry, he calls the Lord's mercy evil. And this is, this is why children's Bibles leave out this chapter. Uh, you know, it's like such an indictment on Jonah and, you know, his people or whatever. And what Jonah said is so harsh, you know, it's like, that's ah, not appropriate or whatever. Um, but then it goes on. So Jonah is so angry he just kind of puts, he kind of pouts, you know, kind of puts on his pity party or whatever. And then the very last verse of the chapter, God is responding. and He says, hey, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness. Not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Actually, another translation says, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? Should I not have compassion on 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness? And that's just how the book ends. The book just ends. I mean, Jonah doesn't even respond. So I have a few things that I feel like we we can do with this. The first is that Jonah and God had competing visions for what Jonah's life was supposed to look like. They had very different ideas of what the good life was supposed to look like, right? You have Jonah, who's a prophet, who's supposed to represent the people of God, doing the prophetic work of of sharing the good news about God with, with the world to bless the nations. But he had a very different idea of what his life in that vein was supposed to look like. And the mission to Nineveh was not a part of his vision, so he heads the opposite direction. He gets on a, on a boat to Tarshish, to the edge of the world, to get away from God. And, and this is interesting because Jonah thought that he was running for his life. Like, God is ruining my party. I've got to save what I have and, and, and keep what, what my, my idea of my good life. I need to keep this alive. He was running for his life. But in reality, he was running from his life. I feel like you guys need to write that down. That was a good point. Okay, so <laughs> instead of running for his life, he's running from his life. That he thought he was saving something by withholding it from God. Say, like, God, you can't touch this part of my life. And God like, No, if you would, if you could see that, if you would just be able to set that down, I have something so much better for you. And it's interesting that he goes begrudgingly to Nineveh. Against his wishes, because this fish comes and kind of brings him back to where he's supposed to go. And then he kind of is like, fine, I'll go. I don't want to get swallowed by fish again. And he goes, but even still, he's not able to enjoy it. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus here, like, going to a place of 120,000 people and you literally say five words, and the whole city's like, oh my gosh, you're the most amazing person ever. Like, we were all in, like, mass revival. The Holy Spirit's just blowing people up. I mean, that would be like the greatest thing ever, right? Like, he you being a part of something like that, like here in Manhattan or something, you know? I mean, that would be incredible. But he's not even able to enjoy it for what it is because he's still latched onto, this isn't what I saw my life was going to look like. This is not the vision I have for my life. So even though he's doing it, He's totally missing out. He's running from the life that God had for him to be this covenant person that was going to bless the nations of the earth. So, so if you're here, man, you're, you're wrestling. Maybe you're in, you're in a place of investigating Jesus. You're not really sure about following Jesus, man. I I think God wants to invite you into His covenant people to be a part of His people group that goes and blesses the nations. That, that goes and announces God's goodness and this new life that God has in the world. He wants to invite you into being a part of that. But it's, it's a vision that is probably very different from yours for what your life should look like. And I, I just got to encourage you that it, God's is so much better than yours. God's vision for your life is so much better than your own. Jesus came to bring abundant life. If you would take up your cross, lay down your vision of what your life was supposed to look like, and take up His. And even if you're a Christian, even if you're a follower of Jesus, we can still find ourselves competing with God over the vision of what we think our life should look like. Uh, for instance, when I uh, first came on staff with Call to Greatness, uh, I was at KU. Uh, I was just graduating uh, mechanical engineering and uh, was not excited about engineering, so I, joined, I did this internship with Call to Greatness. And the initial premise of the internship was to move to Manhattan. They're like, hey, what would you think about moving to Manhattan for two years for your internship? I was like, why the heck would I move to Manhattan? Like, this is the last place I want to go to, you know? It's like, the cool places are in the opposite direction, you know? I'm headed to Tarshish, you know? Like, come on, <laughs> I'm like, where's the boat for Tarshish, you know? And, uh, and so I did it. I didn't go. I, I was like, no, I can't do that. I'm not, I'm not doing that. And so... Uh, they're like, okay, fine, like, how about you stay in Lawrence, you know, do your internship here in Lawrence, so they're like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I'll stay in Lawrence, and, uh, and so that semester, God really started digging up some things in my heart about what I believe to be true about what following Jesus really looked like, and what being a covenant person that blesses the nations really looks like, and man, it totally changed this paradigm that I had about what that looked like, and so, you know, six months later, uh, they were like, hey, what about Manhattan, and I was like, dude, I'll go anywhere. This would be awesome. Like, I'm all in. Let's go. And, uh, man, God just totally changed my heart. So I came, uh, 2011, and man, the seven years that I had here were so incredible. They were so amazing to see what God was doing here, uh, seeing disciples made, people's lives rocked by the gospel. It was so fun, uh, and totally set me on the trajectory where I am today that I don't think I would be experiencing if I hadn't obeyed the Lord in that. And, uh, but I had a competing vision for what I thought my life was supposed to look like, and I had to lay that down. And, and so now, my wife and I are in Lawrence for just a year or two-year-long two period uh, as we're preparing to plant a church. And uh, when we left Manhattan, we approached our leaders and we're like, man, we feel like God's calling us to plant a church in Colorado. You know, I mean, that would be awesome. I could just see it in my mind, you know, like, man, going hiking all the time. It would be so sweet, you know, like, man, go snowboarding, and it would be so awesome. Rock climbing, you know, the whole deal would be so cool. And, uh, oh, yeah, but we would have a church, you know, we'd minister to people, too. And uh, and they're like, that's cool. What about Topeka? And they're like, "Uh, is that for, like, someone else you're supposed to meet with? Like, I... We're, we're, my name's John. We're the Griffiths. Like, we just told you the Lord's calling us to Colorado. You know, like i, I feel like you misheard me. You know, and they're like, yeah, yeah, no, that's cool. But what about Topeka? I mean, Topeka's pretty cool, right? And you're like, ah, no, Topeka's like literally the last place we would want to go. Like, literally any town in the planet. Like, list them all out. Topeka would be at the bottom. You know, like, like all the towns in the world. So like, not—not not the highest one. You know, and uh, but in the last six months, it's literally the same story. Uh, we. We started meeting people that lived in Topeka. We started going to Topeka. We started meeting young people in Topeka. And st- we started to see that, man, there's kind of a need here. Like, there's not really a church doing this sort of things that we want to do here. This would be really cool. Like, this would actually be really cool. You know, I mean, th- we could really see some cool things happen if we went here. So all of a sudden, we're like, man, Topeka doesn't look so bad. Like, this would be pretty sweet, you know? And so, again, God was just changing our hearts to, hey, it's not about your vision for your life. It's about my vision for your life. And so you're like, okay, God, again, we'll go anywhere that you want us to go. You want us to go to Topeka. You want us to go to Nineveh. Man, we'll, we're in, you know, well, let's do this, you know. And so we're going to Topeka. <laughs> uh, maybe Colorado's next, you know. I, we're still holding on to that a little bit. <laughs> uh, and so what, uh, what do we do with that? Well, whether you're a, a follower of Jesus and you have this conflicting vision for your life, or you're not a follower of Jesus and you have a big conflicting vision for your life, the proper response is repentance. That's the proper response. Is repentance is turning, changing our minds. It's turning from one thing to a different thing. So we repent. We say, God, okay, this was my vision. It was taking me this way. God, man, I'm laying that down. I'm laying down this vision that I had for my life, this path that I had for my life to Tarshish or wherever. And God, I'm taking up the vision that you have for my life. That's what repentance is. It's a turn. It's a change. And so that's the proper response, whichever camp you're in. Say, God, forgive me. God, I'm laying this thing down at your feet. I'm giving this to you. And and if you want to take that, and I never say that again, that's totally cool. Take me where you want me to go. Let's do this. So that's the proper response if we're running from our life. And we may not realize that we're running from our life. So my next next point, uh, and I I didn't warn you about this ahead of time. I kind of gave you a little sneak peek. You know, we talked about the fish isn't really the main issue. Uh, I don't know if you flashed the title slide up. The the fish is not the main point. The main point is that there's a laser beam on our chest. Uh, And what I mean is this. Have you guys ever seen those movies Uh, This scene is kind of in a million movies you'd recognize where the good guy is chasing the bad guy. Maybe it's through a dark alley or an abandoned warehouse or something. And then all of a sudden he stops because there's a laser on his chest. You know, it's like the bad guys all have their guns trained on him. And he's like, oh, whoa. And uh, Jonah is is a very clever book. It's actually a very carefully laid trap. Because Jonah is the, he's exposed as this really self-deceived person on a very deep level. Jonah is supposed to represent the people of God who love God's purposes and want to bless the nations. And he's selfish. He's, he's spiteful. He's vengeful. Uh, he's very self-deceived into who he thinks he is. And so by the end of the book, as the reader, we, we can think that we are superior to Jonah. Right? We're like, what an idiot. Like, I would never do what Jonah did. Like, he's such an idiot. You know? At which point we look at the the author of the book and he's no longer smiling at us. He's just like waiting to punch us in the gut, you know? And we're like, oh, wait a second. Jonah is me. And so the minute that we read Jonah, we're like, what an idiot. We've been caught in the trap and we didn't even know it because the laser beam is not just on Jonah, it's on you and me. And it's pointing out stuff in our lives that is not good and it's not from the Lord. And what I mean is this, Jonah represents the covenant people of God. Remember, they're supposed to bless the nations of the earth, live open-handed, generously, miraculously. And that's, that's, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's supposed to be us. But Jonah exposes the worst tendencies that tend to crop up in the people of God themselves. Like hard-heartedness, pride, judgmentalism, tribalism, small-mindedness inability to grow and change and let God's purpose surprise us because we have this very limited idea of what God wants to do through us. And so Jonah brings up questions like, do we really love all of God or just the parts of God that are good to us? Do I love all of God or only the parts that are good to me? Like, do I love the parts of God that are good to the people I don't like? Do I love the parts of God that are good to my enemies? Or people that have hurt me or offended me? Is God still good to them? Because if He is, I don't know if I can trust Him. Do we still love God then? And now, oftentimes, uh, we encounter God, right? We have this incredible revelation. Wow, God is so amazing. He loves me. He's so for me. And uh, and we're convinced that God's amazing. And and we would do anything to serve this God, right? Like, man, I would would go anywhere. I would do anything. Until God asks us to do something He didn't expect us to ask us. Or He does something we didn't expect Him to do. Like, he asks us to do something we're uncomfortable with. Or, or maybe he does the same thing that he did in your life, but to that person you knew in high school that's a really terrible person. You know, they really were just a trash person. And But then God, like, reveals himself to them, and they start following Jesus. You're like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Like, they don't deserve your mercy like I did. Like, they're a terrible person. Like, you can't follow Jesus. Like, you're a bad person. You know what I'm saying? And so you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Laser beam, right there, right there on your chest. And we think, hey, that's not the fair. I deserved it. They don't. And remember, Jonah, the end, God responds. He says, should I not have compassion on 120,000 people that are in spiritual darkness? Should I not have compassion on that person the same way I had compassion on you? Because each one of us are recipients of God's grace and mercy And God chooses to to use extremely flawed people. hate to break it to you, you're an extremely flawed person. I'm an extremely flawed person, right? But the tendency is once God's people begin to see themselves as a unique group who have received God's mercy and favor, we can quickly develop an arrogance and a hostility against people that are not in our group. Be like, well, you're not in my group. I have God's favor, you don't. You know? And it's easy to forget that we are exactly like them. Like we are the recipients of God's grace and we're just as bad as the Ninevites as before God gave us his mercy. And we can limit God's mercy in people's lives because we shut them out. And we said, Nah, I'm just gonna do the bare minimum here. Like I don't really like they seem like a really bad person, like they got a lot of bad stuff. They smoke weed. You know, or you, whatever, they, they do bad things. I really don't think they'd be into this God thing. And so we can limit and even even deny people the possibility of encountering the life-changing grace of God. Right. That's right. And Jonah is critiquing exactly that. He saying, don't do that. Don't do that. He's got the laser on our chest right there. He's, no, 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 that's not the way the people of God are supposed to live. Because remember... The people of God are supposed to bless the nations of the earth. We're supposed to live full of joy and celebration at the success of other people. Like, man, instead of like, man, I hate the Ninevites. Like, I never want to go there. Man, Topeka is the worst. I never want to go there. It's like, man, what if God could use me to reach Topeka? What if God wanted to use me to reach that high school buddy of mine that seems totally off the the train? Like, man, what, that would be amazing. Like, what if God could use me to bless that person? Wouldn't that be so cool? And enter and thrive in the kingdom of God. So my encouragement for us is to let's not write off people or run in the opposite direction of those that we think are too different or people maybe even that have hurt us or offended us. Let's not write them off. Let's not run from those people or people that we think are too far gone. Like, man, they're too far from God. They really wouldn't want this. We make the decision for them, you know? they are like, nah, you wouldn't like this. I'm not even going to tell you about it. You know? And so I, I just want to share this personal story as I close that um, I, in, a, in one way, I was the Ninevite. You know? Um, when I was uh, in college, I considered myself a follower of Jesus and uh, and loved God, and wanted to, to thrive in the life that God had for me, but I was really selfish, and I was really kind of focused on my own thing, uh, and not what God was, was wanted me to focus on, and so uh, I got involved in Call to Greatness, but I was kind of like the most reluctant disciple of all time. Like, they would invite me to stuff, and be like, nah, I don't want to go that. You know, like, hey, you want to come to Knowing God class? Nah, not really. Like, I already know that stuff. Like, that's b- beneath me, you know? Or, uh, um, I remember this is like so shameful, like, uh, like for me thinking back to this, I got invited to this like student leader thing, and I was like, that's lame, like I'm not going to that, like that's so stupid, you know, and I didn't go, like my friend who was a part of that invited me, I was like, yeah, no, nah, I don't think I'm going to go to that, like I don't need to go to that, I don't need your team, you know, or whatever, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it was so embarrassing, it's, I thought that, I actually thought that, and uh, and and so I wasn't getting with the program. Like, I didn't, do the, I didn't jump through all the hoops that I was supposed to jump through. But still, when I graduated, they, man, there were people that still believed in me and kept reaching out to me and kept like, man, there's something in you that we believe in. And so they invited me to do an internship. By all accounts and purposes, I was never qualified to, like, come on staff or do this internship because I didn't do any of the program before that. You know, like, what made you think I would do this? You know, and I was just like... Yeah okay I would do like whoa, whoa he said yes to something, wow okay sweet you know like it took me forever to become a member at Morningstar because I was like, well what if I want to just go somewhere else, and they're like well are you going to go somewhere else? No, but what if I want to, <laughs> you know? So I'm not going to become a member, you know? It's like this selfish pride stuff, you know, and uh, man so I just relate to this that man there were people that believed in me that were just so generous and open handed with me that I honestly would not be where I am today if I didn't have people that kept pursuing me even though I didn't get with the program even though I didn't get on the bus Uh, and man I'm so thankful for those people um and there's this this tribe that I heard about in South Africa that uh I'm actually closing now the uh (laughs) beginning to close is different than closing and uh this tribe in South Africa that's in the middle of nowhere in South Africa, and in their language, the closest thing to a, like, hello, is this phrase, sawubona. Okay, sawubona. Everybody says "Sawu that. sawubona. That's really fun. It means, I see you. So instead of hello, it's, I see you. And if you're a member of the tribe, if someone says sawubona to you, I see you, you would respond by saying, seek hona, which means, I am here. I see you. I am here. And this is really interesting because the order of the exchange is really important. Until you see me, I do not exist. It's almost as if when you see me, you bring me into existence. Isn't that interesting? I find that very interesting. And to me, that speaks of what the people of God are supposed to be and do. That everywhere that we go, we'd be like, hey, I see you. Man, I'm I'm calling something up out of you. But man, like, uh, it's almost as if people don't exist. Like the, like the life that God had made for them doesn't exist until you call it up. Like, hey, I see what you were made to be and do. I see that. Let's, let's go there together. Let's, let's walk into the kingdom life that God has for us. So, man, I, this, there's no better calling in life to be a part of the covenant people of God that man, everywhere we go, man, I see you. Man, I'm calling something up out of you. So I I hope that that God can lead us into this. Let me pray for us. Excuse me. God, thank you so much for this incredible life that you call us into, Lord. That you would call us people to bless every family on the earth. That you would call us to be people who bless the nations of the earth. God, thank you that that in our weakness, in in our frailty, in our wickedness, God, you relentlessly pursued us you never wrote us off but God we are recipients of your incredible mercy and grace God it blows our minds may we never forget that God and never think that man we're too good that we're 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 better than than other people but God live in this humble mission that you have for us in Jesus name amen